4, here's this setting the stage. David is on the run from Saul. God has opened up um, a way for David and his men to have, find refuge in En Gedi. And if you remember from last week, that's this beautiful, it's a real location in Israel. It's a beautiful and refreshing kind of stronghold right on the edge of the wilderness. And it becomes a source of strength and renewal for David and his men. And we pick up the story as uh, Saul has returned from pursuing the Philistines and he's back on track trying to hunt down David. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he, to- he was told, oh, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself, right? There's no porta potties in the ancient world. David and his men were actually farther back in the cave. And the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David's men are like, whoa, like this is it. This is what God was talking about when he said this to you. Now what's interesting is we have no record of God saying this to David in the previous chapters, which means it's something that was communicated to David and his men are reminding David, or it's a exaggerated, contextually slightly spun version of what God did promise David through his anointing that he would give David's enemies into his hands and sort of what gets tacked on by David's men is the part where it says, and you can deal with them however you want. This is something that David's men desperately want to be true. Remember, they've been on the run too. These are those who have felt marginalized by Saul's rule and oppressed and they're in debt. And they want all of this running and hiding to come to an end as well. There's a lot of peer pressure being exerted on David in this moment. It's all his men saying, here's your opportunity. Once in a lifetime, seize it. We can end Saul's cowardly, vicious, unhinged reign right now. We can do it today. We can go back to our homes. You can get on the throne. This is such a good thing. David, deal the killing blow. We're never going to have an opportunity like this again. And it's good for us to try and pause and inhabit this story and to say, what would we do in this situation? What would we do? Like, honestly, if someone was trying to take your life and you were on the run, what would you be tempted to do when the very person leading the charge is at their most vulnerable and you could end their persecution of you? What would you feel entitled to do if previously you had been anointed as the king and you knew that at some point God was going to put you in charge think about how tempting it would be to be like well this is probably the way God's opening up for me to do it David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe if you're reading that story or hearing it for the first time, you're expecting David crept up unnoticed and cut off Saul's head, right? But no, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. 
And then he returns back into the cave to his men. And it says that David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And again, if you inhabit the story, you can imagine if you're one of those men who are like, I haven't seen my wife and kids for who knows how long. I'm on the run. We're just living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. We're barely making it. And David decided that he wanted to honor this king. And he's using this, he's a, yeah, I mean, technically, yes, Saul's anointed, but like, you're anointed too, David. And Saul's clearly not following God. Think of the anger. Think of the tension in the room when David has to say to these hundreds of men, no, I'm not taking this path. David so respected Saul as the Mashiach Yahweh, the, the anointed one of Yahweh, because Saul was still on the throne. And David said he hasn't been removed. God hasn't removed him. And so it's God's prerogative to remove Saul from the throne. But it's not my prerogative. I don't get to make that call when it happens. And even though he's been anointed to be the next king, David still doesn't see that as an entitlement or a green light to just make that happen. He trusts God's timing. He trusts God to remove Saul and to promote him in God's way according to God's timeline. And that allows David to stand up to the schemes of men who might kind of be well-intended but are absolutely encouraging David to murder Saul. Because to David's men, the ends justify the means. Now, I want to make one quick aside here. Um, and that is this passage, this, um, this idea that David says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing. This is the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't lay my hand on him. He's the anointed of the Lord. If you have had any exposure to a bit more uh, Pentecostal or charismatic uh, traditions, not only in those traditions, but predominantly in those traditions, there can be something called sort of like a uh, touch not God's anointed theology, or that gets used as a sort of um, shield wall to defend pastors and leaders from criticism. It's kind of a shorthand that refers to uh, a few scriptures. This is one of them where leaders and pastors or apostolic leaders in charismatic circles aren't actually allowed to be criticized or challenged. And so, if there's concern from individuals within the church about the way a pastor is doing things or um, outright immorality, right? There could be abuse or lies or a financial manipulation and exploitation. There's actually very little recourse to criticize or to hold that pastor accountable because once any criticism is forwarded or even questions are forwarded it's kind of like don't touch the lord's anointed they're they're in their position you're, you're you're punching above your weight class your job is to submit to that authority 
And we're supposed to honor that person. In Psalm 105, this is sort of the main text that 1 Samuel 24 gets hung on. God says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And so you can see how if you take that idea that God says, don't touch my anointed ones, like my key point leaders, and don't harm my prophets, those who speak in my name, and then you see the example of David, you can understand how someone would say, see, we're supposed to hold up leaders like Jeff. He's the pastor, and that's capital P. And yes, of course, that doesn't mean we treat the pastor like God, but it's a very high and exalted office, and we have to be very careful, even to the point of always assuming we're in the wrong, to not bring accusation against him. If that has been a part of your congregational or theological history, I just want to kind of cut to the chase on this one and say that's a really uh, toxic, manipulative, um, however well-intended, it's a manipulative dislocation of the text. And it's really just used by churches or often by leaders who are overcome with either pride or insecurity. The command from God to not touch his anointed ones and do his prophets no harm was given for a specific group at a specific time, and it is never to be used in order to deflect criticism or to silence challengers. In fact, no, no, none of the apostles in the New Testament, none of the church leaders in the New Testament, even though there's lots of contention, even though Paul spends almost all of 2 Corinthians defending himself to accusations that, oh, Paul's in it for the money, or he's not really, he postures like he's a man of God, but he's not really. Paul never once says, oh, you're not allowed to raise these questions. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Do you know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. Don't you dare talk to me like that. He just, he receives the criticism and then pushes back and explains his position. It's never invoked once in the New Testament as a way of shielding from critique. And again, the idea that a pastor or another anointed leader or ministry leader is above correction, is above discipline, is above accountability, is, is just an absolutely demonic twisting of the text. And again, it's rooted in pride and insecurity. If you are a strong leader, you are strong enough to be held accountable. If you are a strong godly leader, you will want to be held accountable. That is something that you actually want and if I'm not ready to be corrected or challenged or pushed or disciplined or even removed from my position because of ongoing um, sinful, abusive behavior, then I'm actually not qualified to lead, God, to lead God's people. So I think the Christians should honor their leaders. We see that in David. He's doing as much as he can to honor Saul. But this never gives um, our leaders a pass on abusive behavior, deceptive behavior, bullying, exploitative behavior, sinful behavior of any kind. So that was my little aside that I wanted to make sure I touched on. Okay, let's go back to the text. David has cut off a part of Saul's robe. He spared Saul's life. And again, he explains why. He says, because Saul is the king. He's God's chosen king for now. I don't agree with what he's doing, but God hasn't removed him from the throne. And David is also thinking about 
not just ends, well, if we did this, then you could be king and everything would be peaceful and Israel would be under good leadership. He's also thinking through means. And this comes up a lot in 1 Samuel. The difference between David and Saul and good kings and bad kings isn't just the good ends that they're striving towards, but it's what they're using to get there. And David is a man after God's own heart, and he says, I won't secure a godly end through violent and murderous means. A good outcome doesn't justify a bad, wicked way of getting there. That's not how God would have me lead. I won't cooperate in Saul's removal in any way that is unethical, that is self-serving, and that is sinful. And that's a huge test of our character. Whenever we come into a situation where there's something that we want, and it's something good, it's not even something bad, it's like, it's good, right? Think of David's men. David, peace, prosperity, good leadership on the throne. We're, we're home, and we're sleeping in our own beds, and our tummies are full of good food. Like, that's a good thing, right? Wouldn't God want that? So, when we're presented with something good, it's not just about saying, well, as long as I can make it happen, the ends justify the means. No. We have to do it the right way. We have to go after it. We have to achieve it through the right means. Getting a good grade is awesome. But cheating in order to get a good grade, God will not bless. Getting a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend can be a great thing. But allowing your own physical or emotional or spiritual boundaries to be crossed in order to kind of hook that person in and, and get them interested, that's not good. Making money, having a business that flourishes, awesome. Doing that by exploiting people or inversely showing up to work and doing the least amount and in a sense extracting pay from your employer but really doing the minimum effort, yeah, getting a paycheck, flourishing, those are good things. But when we don't secure them the right way, they don't honor God. Getting your kids to obey you, good thing. Using threat and intimidation to do it might be effective, but it's disastrous. Getting ahead in your career, good thing. Doing it by throwing colleagues under the bus or sabotaging or starting rumors or angling and playing a political game in order to cut off opportunities that maybe should go to someone else. Securing good ends through bad means is always wrong, and David knows this. And so as dangerous as it is for him to let Saul go, he says, I will not honor God by achieving a good end in an ungodly, sinful way. He says, I will only go after a good thing if there's a right way to do it. And what that means for us is if we, if we can't get something good in a way that is actually good, if we have to steal, cheat, lie, manipulate, abuse in order to get that, then we're not supposed to have that. No matter how good that thing is, no matter how noble that thing is, we're not supposed to have it. We have to, like David, say, it's not my time yet then. And there's a parallel with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Go and read that at some point this week. Matthew chapter 4. When Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness, every single 
outcome that Satan offers Jesus is good. All three of them are. But it's the invitation how to get there that is the temptation. Feeding people who are hungry, good. Establishing to the world that you are absolutely the Son of God, that's good. Having all the kingdoms of the world under Christ's control, what could be better? It's not the outcome that is the temptation, it's the means, it's the way, it's the path. And we have to understand that too, because we have, I think, way too many Christians trying to advance a very good agenda through very ungodly, immature, destructive ways. We're building churches, we're advancing the kingdom, we're pulling all this stuff off. Yeah, we're crushing people in the meantime, we're exploiting people out of their money, we're lying to people, we're using some shady practices, but, but look at this. That does not bring honor to God. And yet, I see it happening all the time. God is only honored if we honor God through the means and the end. And so if I can't secure a good thing the right way, I am not meant to have it, at least at this time. And I, like David, need to trust God and continue to move forward in doing the next right thing. Even if that endangers me, or it feels like, wow, I'm letting this opportunity go. Imagine David watching Saul walk out of that cave, completely oblivious to the danger that he was in. David's like, I mean, maybe he didn't, but you know, maybe I would be like, am I making the right decision? Did I do the right thing? This is, my men are right. I'll never have this opportunity again. But he trusts God that he doesn't take vengeful, murderous action against Saul. And if God's going to put David on the throne, David says, I'm going to make sure that it's God's way and not because I have to betray my own conscience and betray God. Now, if all David did was not kill Saul, that would be pretty incredible, but then he does something even greater. And again, this is another plot twist in the story that if you are not familiar with the story, you do not anticipate these next few verses. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord King, and then Saul looked behind him and David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. It's it's a show of um, reverence and submission to a king higher than you. And he said to Saul, why do you listen to these men who say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, again, another show of respect. He says, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. He says, look it out like, this wasn't just like, I missed by a mile, like this was inches. I was inches from you. I caught off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. So that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you really pursuing? A dead dog or a flea? Like this is David's way of saying like, dude, I'm not a threat to you. You're the king. You have thousands. Of, like, I'm a nobody. 
May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Wow, that was gutsy. David stands out and says to Saul, I don't want, I don't want this fight to go on. It can end here today. I'm trusting God to right any wrongs you've done against me. I'm not going to take it into my hands. And again, think about David's men in the cave. He doesn't consult his men. He just goes out. Now all the men in the cave are like, what is David doing? Like the jig is up. We're now exposed. You know, and I picture Saul maybe hearing all this with his back turned to David. And then he turns and looks. And maybe he's 30 yards out, 50 yards out, 100 yards out. And he turns around. What's going to happen? How is Saul going to respond to this? He's got all of his men with him. He just needs to say a word and it's over. When David finished saying this, Saul said, Is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul began to weep aloud. Not like (laughs) stifling. Like tears, snot, audible, like breaking down. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well. I have treated you badly. You have just told me about, how, about the good you did to me, and the Lord delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. I mean, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me, David, by the Lord, that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, and then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. But I want us all to see from this passage, there's a lot here. It's incredibly rich as you kind of inhabit the story and move through it and be like, God, like teach me. But at a very basic level, we are getting a master class here on what it actually means to love your enemies. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus equates sort of like the apex of spiritual maturity and godliness with the ability to love those who are against us like intentionally not like we've got some tension like there are enemies and paul reinforces this commandment in romans 12 he says to an early group of christians who are about to move into serious persecution like thrown to the lions burned at the stake dismembered sawed in two serious stuff not like people saying mean things about me on facebook he says bless those who persecute you Bless, don't curse, don't repay evil for evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone around you. So don't take revenge, dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. Do what David did. God, avenge, if it's wrong against me, you avenge it, but I'm not going to take that matters into my own hand. Because the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And then he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the synopsis of what it means to love your enemies. And that's a core Christian ethic. That's not like a peripheral, hey, if you have time and you're super spiritual keener and you want to go to like level 10 of discipleship, like this is kind of like level one. We are to be people who love our neighbor and that doesn't just mean the people who like us and we get along with. We're called to love our enemies. But what does it look like to overcome evil with good? What does it look like to actually love your enemies? Because we obviously aren't called to like our enemies. No one likes having someone against us. But what does it look like to love? Well, David shows us. Look at the three things that David does. First of all, he refuses to harm Saul. So that's just basic how to love your enemy. Just don't physically harm them. Don't harm their reputation. Don't uh, place any obstacle in their way which is meant to be, in a direct or indirect way, destructive. The starting point of loving your enemy is just not to harm them. But David went further. David, in the next few verses, in 8 to 15, he takes the initiative to reconcile. It's not enough to just say, I'm I'm not going to hurt Saul. He says, I actually want to take the initiative to see if we can make peace. So David tries to make peace. He's not a peacekeeper. Peacekeeping is when we don't have challenging, hard conversations with people in order to not rock the boat. Peacemaking is when we lean into difficult conversations, confrontations, in order to make peace through a process of being honest and and being vulnerable and bearing and, and having some ebb and flow of like, this isn't right, we need to set things right. He takes the initiative to reconcile. He says, my hand won't be against you, but he reaches out to Saul. And so loving your enemies also means we are called to take the initiative to reach out to those who are against us. Not to say, well, I'm willing. Like if they, if Saul comes into this cave and is like, David, I'm so sorry, I was the worst, you're the best, I'm such a jerk, I've done all these things wrong, please, please, please. He grovels, I'll give him like a half an hour groveling and then, yeah, I'll think about it, I'll be willing to reconcile. David takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for the opportunity. He puts himself in a hugely vulnerable position and says, Saul, we don't have to, this doesn't have to continue. We can reset things right now. And then David goes even further and he commits to doing good towards Saul. Doesn't just harm, not harm Saul takes the initiative to reconcile, and then he commits to doing good towards Saul. Greg uh, Breezeal, who's a pastor of Metro East Baptist Church in Kansas, uh, he had a good summation of of what's happening here, and and it was challenging to me, and I thought I'd share it with you. He says, evidence of true reconciliation is continuing love and goodness. Conflict always gives us a chance to get closer to one another, closer to our own understanding of ourselves, to God, and it gives us a unique opportunity to glorify God. And if a genuine commitment to do our enemy good and do the other person good is not reached, then reconciliation hasn't actually taken place. So the way that we love our enemies is to refuse to do them harm, seek to reconcile, and commit to do good and bless them. Now Romans 12, again, says, as far as it depends on you, you can't make reconciliation happen. But we are called to not do harm, at least take some initiative to say, 
I know there's tension, I know there's history, or for some, I don't even understand why, honestly. You just seem to hate my guts or be against this thing that's happening. I want to understand. I, I don't want this to go on. Like, is there a way that we can work this out? And then to look for ways to bless and serve that person. Because often, hurt people hurt people. The, um, the violence, the vitriol, the slander, the targeting, the bullying comes from a heart that is overwhelmed with its own pain and anger and despair and hopelessness. And the call to love our enemies is a core call that this text puts in front of us. David is being an amazing example here. And it's something that Jesus builds on and says, it's a non-negotiable if you want to follow me. But where do you find a power to love like that? Like to really love and have patience and care for people who are set against you. I think we need to do more than just look to David for inspiration. I think we have to look to that greater King Jesus who, of whom David is just a shadow. Right? David risks his life to secure a chance at reconciliation with Saul. But Jesus gives up his life. At the cost of his life, Jesus opens up an opportunity for us to be reconciled to God. David's grace allows Saul to live another day. Jesus' grace allows us to live forever, free from eternal death and condemnation and hell. Timothy Keller said once, if you don't understand what Jesus saved you from, you will never sing amazing grace with tears in your eyes. And as it relates to this text, I would modify that and say, if you don't understand the kind of person you were when Jesus called to you and said, hey, Jeff, come follow me, you will never know how to love your enemies. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, and sinners has a large... Uh, um, umbrella, it's, it, it's, a, it's a big term that holds together a lot of nuance, but one of those angles is people who are at enmity with God. People who don't want God in their life. They want to be on the throne of their own hearts, and they live life resisting God, rejecting God, ignoring God, with their mouth and with their actions, spitting in God's face and saying, I'll live life on my terms, thank you very much. And to those people, while we were still in that space, that heart space, Jesus pursued us, came, and died for us. We were enemies with God. But Jesus resisted harming us. He just could have condemned us outright. He didn't. He moved first. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he went all the way to the cross and now he's committed to our good in all things, beginning now and then stretching out into eternity. And it's only when that truth begins to sort of settle on your heart and begins to reshape your imagination and your identity and the way you see other people that you're able to move towards the enemies in your life. To move towards those who despise you with patience and grace and humility. Let's pray that God would give us strength for that. God, it is hard to love 
even people who are trying to love us. But it's an altogether different thing to try and love and bless and do good to those who don't give a rip about us or whose lives are set against us or who use their words to cut us down, their actions to intimidate or to uh, abuse. God, fill us with your love so that instead of being fueled by vengeance, instead of having a heart that is hardened against our enemies, we would be able to see through the manifestation of their hatred. That hearts that need your love and the gospel, and that in some way, even if it's imperfectly, as much as it depends on us, we would seek to make peace and to be a witness to your love and mercy in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.